Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk. I'm John Gill, Chief Training Officer of the ACFE, and I'm going to be your host today. And our topic, we're going to talk about trends in real estate fraud, both uh, what's, what's the new fraud out there and what are some new ways to catch it and stop it. And so my guest today is David Fleck. David began his legal career in 1997 at the U.S. Customs Service fighting import fraud. In 1999, he moved on to the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, and he prosecuted felonies and complex financial crimes, including real estate, investment, business, insurance, loan fraud, identity theft, forgery, financial elder abuse, and money laundering. He did that for 10 years, so he definitely knows a lot about fraud. Private, he went into private practice in 2009, and he's represented fraud victims in civil lawsuits to recover real property and money, as well as defended a handful of alleged fraudsters. He's wrote, uh, he wrote legislation to help fight uh, deed fraud, and he's a member of the faculty for the four-day course that teaches California detectives how to investigate real estate fraud. And most recently, he found a company to develop technology to prevent real estate fraud. And he attended UCLA for his bachelor's degree and his law degree. And as an undergrad, he competed for the UCLA swimming and diving team. And as a springboard platform diver, he won the Pac-10 championship and was awarded All-American honors twice. And I'll also say that uh, he has, uh, his daughter has followed in his footsteps and is a superb athlete. Um, my law school alma mater is University of Texas at Austin, and that's his, I live in Austin. And his daughter, Zoe Fleck, is an amazing, incredible uh, volleyball player. She is just uh, outstanding. And she's been, uh, she's all American uh, and has won uh, several awards. And so if, uh, if you get the chance, watch her uh, when they get, uh, they won the, the national championships this year. So in, uh, she's just really incredible to watch. I know you're proud. I'm very proud. Yeah. She's, she's a, she's a great kid and she's actually now over in Germany playing professional volleyball. Oh, really? Well, that's great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's get uh, to talking about fraud. So, you know, real estate fraud is one of those things that it'll pop up and you'll read a lot of stories about it. And then it kind of goes away. But I know from reading the Department of Justice bulletins and, and other, it, it's not gone away. It's just not in the news as much as some of uh, the newer frauds. But it seems to always be there. And the schemes vary a little bit, I think, in their popularity and what's the uh, the scheme of the month. So it's always good to kind of stop and, and see where we're at on a lot of these because these are massive frauds. And, and the last thing you want to do is lose your house or have a relative or client or friend uh, the victim of this because it, it's, uh, it's not like losing a couple of hundred dollars on your credit card. This, this is uh, insidious and it takes an enormous amount of time to get everything straightened out. Uh, so kind of, if you don't mind, David, what, what's the state of real estate fraud right now? That's a good question. And thanks for having me on, John. Uh, it's, uh, I'm really excited to be part of this podcast today. Um, real estate fraud is always there. And the reason is fraudsters are always looking for a pot of gold. 
they need a, a big source of money that they can steal from. And there is so much money in real estate. And it's easy to get usually as well because of the, 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 the simplified mortgage process we have uh, here in the United States. So there are, I think, four major types of real estate crimes. I think cover most of the crimes out there. There could be a few other clever um, con artists out there, but these are the big ones. The big one is mortgage fraud. You all heard about mortgage fraud. And in, in mortgage fraud, the typical victim is the bank, the lender. Somebody lied to get a loan, basically. Um, there, there could, in, in, in some cases, there could arguably be a homeowner victim of mortgage fraud. Um, if the it was the mortgage broker who was scheming and the homeowner didn't know, and you know they were just duped into signing some documents that were fraudulent or whatnot. But the big victim in, in those cases are um, the banks. We can talk more about that crime and um, what happens with that. Uh, then another big one that's always around is just investment fraud. And this is not just in real estate, but real estate is a great way for con artists to talk people into parting with their money. Oh, I've got this great investment opportunity, right? And people people think real estate is always the safe investment. So, and so you have a lot of investment fraud. A, a newer one, or one that people probably hear about in the news, is home title fraud or a deed fraud. In fact, there's you know there's a company out there that has been selling title monitoring services for the last few years. And people have seen the ads on, on television or heard them on the radio. Um, and, and so deed fraud is relatively new uh, in that it's a really only about 20 years old. And I, I'd like to talk more, more about that one because that's a popular subject. And then the last one I'll, I'll mention and that many of your um, members probably have heard about is wire transfer fraud. I'm not talking about wire fraud, which is a federal crime. Talking about wire transfer fraud, where somebody hacks into the email system of a title company and pretends to be an employee of that title company and sends out wiring information to a, a customer. And, you know, it's fraudulent wiring information and the money gets transferred to a fraudulent bank account, that type of thing. So I think those are the four, the four big ones, uh, you know, that people need to be aware of. So mortgage fraud, investment fraud, home title theft and wire transfer fraud. Okay. Oh, that sounds good. Well, let's start with mortgage fraud. It was, what was that, about 10 years ago? It was all over the news, and then it kind of faded away. And uh, I, as part of the financial crisis, they certainly, well, they cracked down on mortgages. I know, you know, before 2008, so probably about 15 years ago, it was, they were handing bank loan uh, home loans out like uh candy at halloween and so then when everything collapsed they kind of ratcheted up the uh, requirements and a lot of people think well that took care of the fraud but i don't think that's the case no it, it's not the case unfortunately uh yeah it was during the subprime mortgage crisis that i kind of cut my teeth on fraud and you know in the late 2000s I was part of a, a group of mortgage fraud experts around the country. We, we kind of uh, did the lecture circuit, going to all sorts of interest, industry conferences and, and that type of thing, talking about mortgage fraud. And it, you know, it was a big topic for a while, just like you said. And 
The banks were cracking down on it. The federal government was cracking down on it. The FDIC was dealing with it in banks that it took over in, in receivership. It was a big deal. And then it just stopped. There came a point where people just didn't want to deal with it anymore, honestly. They didn't want to talk about it anymore. And it was still out there, but it's like they had had enough. They just, it was just too much. Uh, and I know actually people uh, in sort of the mortgage fraud world who, um, whose jobs were eliminated when that, the desire to focus on this crime just ended. And so some, you know, people who built, you know, built their careers uh, fighting this crime, just suddenly there weren't jobs for them anymore in the financial industry, which was kind of interesting. And I actually had a job. I, I left the district attorney's office to work for a boutique firm that represented the FDIC in mortgage fraud cases. And we thought that wave of cases would go on forever. But as I said, they're just, you know, the, the powers that be lost their stomach for it after a while. And the cases just dried up pretty quickly. And there are historically a lot of variations on how, you know, with the loan applications or taking out a mortgage on a property that, that you don't own. What now, what do you see are the, are the major methods of mortgage fraud? Yeah. So let me just talk about fraud in general. First of all, you know, as a trial lawyer, I always try to simplify things for the jury. And so the way I've simplified the concept of fraud is to describe it as a lie. What is a lie? It's an intentional misstatement designed to mislead somebody to persuade them to do something they wouldn't do if they knew the truth. And that's what fraud is, right? And so it's the same thing with mortgage fraud. It's lying to the lender about some material piece of information that if they knew the truth, they wouldn't give the loan. And so there are also all types of uh, lies people tell to lenders to, to um, uh, convince them to give, give them a mortgage. It might be about um, their income. It might be about their assets. It might be about their, their employment. Uh, it might be about their intention to live there versus renting it out as a, as, you know, with, through VRBO. Um, all of these things factor into the lender's decision and a lie on any of these fronts is mortgage fraud. Um, so, I mean, you have different, you can, you can break the perpetrators into different groups. I mean, some people are lying and committing mortgage fraud to get into a home that they really can't afford. Um, other people are, are doing it because they are, they've taken over title to the home and that's part of home title theft and they're trying to suck the equity out of the home that way and those are those are true fraudsters um so i suppose on the culpability i mean it's all a crime it doesn't matter who you are why you did it if you did it it's a crime uh, but i suppose on an ethical level we we're more forgiving of the people who are doing it trying to get into a home but it's still a crime when you say investment fraud a lot of people it's start with Ponzi schemes, but now when you say investment fraud, they, I think they think FTX and uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency type things. What trends are you seeing in investment fraud right now? Yeah, this never really goes away. As I mentioned at the beginning, people see real estate as um, a safe investment. And so it's easier for con artists to per persuade people to 
uh, part with their money and invest in a real estate scheme than perhaps other schemes. Uh, you know, probably easier to get them to put money into real estate than into cryptocurrencies. Although there was a cryptocurrency mania there for a couple of years. So you'll this is usually these will usually be some sort of commercial development uh, that may have some truth to it or not. Um, I, one I, I one I, I I recently went through the United States Attorney's Office's uh, prosecutions of, over the last year just just try to see what things they were going after and there was there was a um, sort of a defunct or dilapidated resort in. Florida that this con artist uh, claimed to own and was renovating and was going to create this beautiful, amazing destination for people to come to. And um, people invested millions of dollars with him and he didn't, well, didn't spend any of the money on that at all. Uh, so it's that type of thing. And, you know, there's there's usually fraudulent documents. There might be fraudulent flyers. There could be a fraudulent website. All, whatever is necessary to persuade the investors that this is the real deal, you know. And so, in fraud cases, well, backing up to mortgage fraud, uh, as well as investment fraud, there's always going to be a paper trail. I mean, um, you know, your your members know that. I mean, that's what they look for. They look for the paper trail. And they look for the the smoking gun and you know, when you specialize in different types of frauds, you, you get to know those documents really well and can zero in on the fraud very quickly. You know, so for example, in mortgage fraud, you'd zero in on the on the loan application because that's where the lie the lies are going to be. You know, and then you'd want to follow up with the closing documents because you want to see who got the money because that'll tell you who was you know the primary actor uh, in, in the fraud. And same thing, same thing in. An investment fraud, although each investment fraud is going to be a little bit different, maybe involved slightly different paperwork uh, where the lie, lies might be. Um, so thing I, I actually, yeah, go ahead. Would he hear a lot about were real estate investment trusts or REITs, and those were popular, and and you would see these things like, oh well, yeah, if you can't afford to buy your own condominium, then you can make tons of easy money by just investing in these uh, REITs or REITs. How does, what do you see with those? Is that still uh, popular? How, uh, what are some of the schemes involving those? Is it just misrepresentation or? Yeah, it, it sure is. Um, I'm trying to think of any, a, a specific example of a, of a REIT that I've come across. Um, I, I came across something similar to that. In fact, it was a case I handled Oh, about a dozen years ago, uh, where the the developer, the criminal developer, claimed to be converting a huge apartment complex into condos uh, down in Naples, Florida, and he had a great dog and pony show, and it was, he was getting all these smaller investors up in the Chicago area to invest in this in this property. Um, you know, none of them had to come in, in, in with big dollar amounts, uh, but all of them had to put some money in. And he was able to abscond with several million dollars in that case. And to the best of my recollection, he was never prosecuted. Uh, there, there was civil litigation um, as a result of it. But, you know, fraudsters don't care about getting sued. 
right? They really, I'd say to say it, they don't, they don't really. And so the thing about it is from a civil side, when it comes to in, uh, going after uh, money for the, uh, for the victim, you're often looking for the facilitators, you know, perhaps typically they weren't involved in the fraud, but their negligence enabled the fraud. In fact, you don't want them to be involved because if they have an insurance policy and they were involved in the fraud, the insurance won't cover it. But if they were negligent, you have the hope of recovering some money uh, for your for your clients. Uh, so often in these lawsuits, you don't even bother suing the fraudster because they got nothing. <laughs> you know, that's the legal term where they got nothing. They're, you know, they are judgment proof. So why waste your money on them? I mean, somebody else might cross claim against them, but for what purpose? There's no money there. So it's all these people on the periphery, the victims, and then the, the unwitting enablers who are, are sucked into the litigation. And it does seem, again, I, I did civil uh, law work before I came work for the ACV. And these types of schemes are really complicated because no one sells no one sells these properties under their own name. They're all under limited liability companies or, or corporate names. And so when you're when it turns out to be a fraud, you've you now you've got a basically a shell company that you're trying to go after. And that makes it even more difficult to try and track down the promoter and tie them to the company and that by the time you do that likelihood that you have, there are any assets left uh, are are gone there are exceptions to the rule but as a general matter criminals spend the money as quickly as it comes in and typically it's gone and so you're going to have to look for some other deep pocket uh to find that and you know these uh, you know, I, I teach a class in California. I'm one of the a, a member of the faculty for a real estate fraud investigations class for detectives in California. And the point I like to make to them is it doesn't have to be complicated, the investigation. You're looking for the lies. You're looking for looking for the misrepresentation. Uh, it could be in paperwork, typically it is in fraud, fraud crimes, a fraudulent document of some sort. Um, or you know, it could be verbal as well. And then you look look where the money went. Uh, and it's it's those two things that you need to do. And it can take some time. I'm not saying it, it, it's not something you can snap your fingers and finish an investigation. In fact, one detective once told me that fraud crimes are so labor intensive that he could close 20 residential burglaries in the same time it takes him to close one fraud case. So I'm not saying, yeah, it's it's a walk in the park and but, but the, the the course of action as an as an investigator is pretty clear and pretty straightforward so and and walk us through a little bit uh, so let's say we have a client comes to us and they invested in some kind of real estate uh transaction and now they can't get a hold of the promoter uh the documents look funny what what would where would be the best place to start? Well, if you have evidence of fraud, of course, you're going to want to make a police report as quickly as possible, either to local law enforcement or, or to the FBI, uh, depending on the circumstances. Get that going, uh, because as you know, law enforcement has tools, investigative tools that uh, we don't have in, in private practice, you know. 
uh, you'll have to file a lawsuit against somebody to get the powers of the, you know, the subpoena powers of the court to start digging through the documents you need to prove who did what. So that's what, you know, what, that's what a lawyer is going to have to do in those, that circumstance is uh, honestly find somebody to sue and, and get the, get, get it moving so you can start your investigation. It's, it's kind of weird or it's kind of inconvenient that in order to do an investigation, you actually have to sue first, <laughs> sue first, ask questions later, basically. Right. Well, it's, it, yeah, uh, it's, exactly it's kind of backwards. Right. It's backwards. You know, there should be perhaps some, some mechanism short of a, a criminal investigation. There should be some mechanism to um, do an investigation and obtain financial documents, but um, it's the way it is. And, and, and the surprise for some people is that, yes, uh, criminal, if you go the criminal route, law enforcement, they can gather a lot of information. But if you come to me as a, as a civil attorney or corporate attorney, I, I can't. Uh, we You have to have a pending lawsuit in order to be able to request documents and uh conduct depositions and, and get this information. So you're right. It, you got, you know, to go either criminal or civil or both in order to, to get the information you need to uh, move forward. Let me, let me give you an example. So for a criminal investigator, a, you know, a, a detective, a local detective, <clears throat> they get a report of a, uh, a real estate fraud crime and um, they have to sort of sit back and try to just for, in their head, sort of imagine how it might have gone down and, you know, do their best guess as to how it went down. And what they're going to do first is send out a round of search warrants to financial institutions to try to gather documents um, based on their best guess as to what happened. And that takes some time. You know, it might take a month to get those back. Uh, it takes them a little time to write the write the search warrants, send them out, or deliver serve them, and then take some time to get the documents back from these financial institutions. In the meantime, they've had to, you know, they've started working on some other cases, doing this or that and the other thing. Eventually, those documents come back in, and they have to refresh their recollection about this case and what they had figured out and were, were thinking and what the the victim said and whatnot. And then they have to go through all these documents and look for the details and the flow of the money and the lies and, and all of this. And they, then they decide that they have another round of search warrants to send out. So they write those and, and, uh, and uh, serve those on, on various people and, or institutions. And they start working on something else and go, you know, work on some other cases. And eventually all that stuff comes back or maybe it didn't and they've got to chase it down. And eventually it comes back and, they have to now refresh their recollection again, not just what the victim told them, but what they learned from those first round of documents. So it's just a very slow, methodical process. And you can't really do that so well in civil litigation. You know, in civil litigation, you file a lawsuit with your best guess as to what happened, naming the people you think were involved. And then they may, you serve them and they may, re, may respond with, a demurrer or a motion to dismiss. You have to go through all that first, and that's based ex and that's based exclusively on what you wrote in your complaint, which was really just a guess on your part. And then, the, then the next step, then if you get past that, then you can start discovery. 
And, you know, it's not so easy to go through these multiple rounds of discovery. The judge might be pushing you along for, you know, hurrying you up. Uh, and you've got to try to do all these things, whereas a, a detective, a criminal, criminal detective, has the time within the statute of limitations to just methodically march forward until they have the entire picture. So, yeah, in civil cases, it's, it, it can be a challenge, but there are also certain circumstances where civil cases can move more quickly. And we haven't talked about it yet, but in the, um, the case of home title theft and deed fraud, the civil route is actually faster than the criminal route, I mean, you know, for, for various reasons. So, um, yeah, there's... It, well, let's talk about that next. Um, okay. You know, I definitely have seen stories about it's notice all of a sudden they're, that their house has been sold out from under them with with uh, with deed fraud. But I, that's something that I've not done a lot of research on. So, you know, for for me and the audience, kind of walk through how this typical deed fraud scheme work. How are they able to to pull this off? Yeah, so I have been fighting deed fraud since 2003. That my very first real estate fraud case was a home title theft case. And that was really the leading edge of this crime. You know, maybe a few years before that. Um, for, for, for hundreds of years, notaries ha have effectively ensured that only the true owner of a property can sign a deed. Because until about 20 or 25 years ago, it was not easy to forge documents credibly. You had to have special printing equipment to do so. But now literally every single computer has the technology on it to create a believable forgery. And on top of that, the bad guys can go online and order a fake notary stamp. There's no checks and balances. And even if there were checks and balances on the most, you know, credible uh, companies online, the Internet is huge. There's always going to be people out there who will make stamps. You send them what you want the stamp to look like and they'll send you back a stamp. That's it. Simple as that. I bought I bought a fake one online. Now, mine says fake, but uh, I bought it for $14 and it was delivered to my house three days later. It, I could have put any notary's name on that stamp. And, and just created all sorts of havoc. And the other thing is modern day fake IDs can be such high quality that you can't tell that they're fake by the naked eye. So there are ways to get around notaries now um, and, and to, so to file forged deeds. And the way our system work is, works is once that deed is filed, then it looks to the whole, whole world like you now own the property. And so... The strategy of the criminal will vary uh, depending on sort of the situation on the ground. You know, is, is somebody living there in the home? Is it a vacant parcel, a parcel of land? Is it an elder? There are different strategies. But the goal, the general goal is to get control of the property. And then find some way to suck money out of it. It might be by taking a mortgage out against the property. Typically, it's not a conventional mortgage because there are enough um, security provisions in, that, in, in the process of obtaining a, uh, a, a conventional mortgage that they will catch something there. 
Um, but there's plenty of hard money lenders out there who all they care about is the equity in the home. They're going to land against the, ima- the amount of equity there is in the home. And they, they're not doing enough due diligence. So the, the con artist can go to a, a hard money lender and just suck, you know, a ton of money, you know, fraud. It's basically mortgage fraud against the hard money lender. Uh, they may sell the property to a flipping company. I, I represented a, a woman who, that happened to her uh, second home and it was sold. The flipping company thought they were buying it from her. They had no idea, but she didn't know she was not involved in the transaction at all. And then the third way, depending on the circumstance, I actually prosecuted a guy who did this. Um, they'll put tenants in there and they'll just collect rents from the tenants as long as they can. So there are different ways to do it, but it all st- goes back to the simple fact that deeds are, are, are very easy to forge. Uh, um, and, well, and, and we haven't yet caught up to that with technology yet. That, that's exactly right. And And if you... Well, even today, most of if you buy a, a house and you go through a title company, you never see what happens to the actual documents. And I, again, when I was a young attorney, we did some uh, real estate transactions, and that was news to me as well. That like you just walk into the county recorder's office and hand them the paper and pay the fee, and they file it in the deed records. There, there's not a you know, no one checks these things out. I mean, if you hand it, you pay the fee, they put it into the record. No, no, no. Somebody does check it out. That's what the notary, that's why the notary exists. And people forget that. The notary is their job is to prevent the identity theft of, of the of the homeowner, to prevent the deed fraud. Um, and so we do have a system for for pre- preventing this, but the crooks have found a way around it. Now there is technology that can prevent it. It just hasn't been rolled out yet. Um, it's just going to take a while because we've been using the system as it is so successfully for so long. It's like turning a massive ship, right? We, we're, right. we need to correct course. Well, and as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong. At least all the states I've worked in, it's all at the county level. Uh, yes, I don't right. know if there are any states that have anything at, at the state level. So, you know, I don't, Texas has, for example, has a lot of counties. So if you're yeah. going int- to introduce some new technology, you've got to go, you know, county by county by county uh, to do this. So well, I think a state could, a, a state could impose the requirements. A state could impose the requirements on, on all the counties. So you could do it that way. Um I will want. I do want to add because I did mention. Uh, I think. I think I said home title lock is out there in, in doing the advertisements and uh, the Texas Attorney General's actually has opened an investigation to home title lock and I have no affiliation with home title. I don't. Um, it, I home title lock. You know, it seems like they set their advertising agency loose and maybe didn't watch as closely as they should have. Uh, the the things that the t- advertising agency was said I, it was saying. I remember early on they were making the claim that the FBI said that deed fraud is the fastest growing crime. And when I saw that, I thought, no, the FBI didn't say that because the FBI doesn't doesn't keep statistics on this. Nobody keeps statistics on this, so they couldn't have said that. Uh, so they said things like that. But I will tell you, I think Home Title Lock has done a huge service to all of us to just by educating people about this crime 
out there. And as a direct result of what of, of home title uh, home title law, about ten percent of counties nationwide are now offering a home title lock type service for free to their residents. They're, they've responded by offering it. And so things are changing and, and working as a result of, result of that. So um, I, have a, I have mixed feelings about, about what home title lock is doing. Yeah, no, they, you know, you got to be a straight shooter in your advertisements. But at the same time, I think they've done a real service by educating people about this crime out there. I just want to add one thing. People always ask me, how big of a problem is this? How big, how many people are being victimized by this? Nobody keeps any statistics on, on deed fraud or home title fraud. I have done my best on anecdotal evidence to make come up with an estimate. And my very, very, very rough estimate is that there are reports of about 10,000 incidents of home title theft per year nationwide. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a lot. On the other hand, you think, well, there's at least 85 million homes in the country. 10,000, that's really a tiny percentage. And it's true. However, deed fraud, home title theft, in my opinion, is the most damaging type of identity theft. Because that's what it is. You're stealing the identity of the homeowner, forging their name on a deed, transferring ownership, making it look like ownership is transferred. The reason so it's so damaging is because to unwind a fraudulent deed requires a lawsuit, requires you to figure out what has happened and how it could possibly have happened because people don't expect that this could happen ever. They don't, they don't get it. They go to the recorder's office first and the recorder's like, I don't know who, I don't know from me. I don't know you. I don't know them. I, I don't know anybody. I just take the document. So maybe they find a lawyer who will find, find follow a, a quiet, excuse me, will file a quiet title lawsuit to get their property back. And, you know, if all the stars align perfectly, that might take six months and maybe cost $5,000. But anybody who's been involved in litigation knows that litigation lawsuits take on lives of their own. And it can drag on for years and cost tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and the homeowner can't sell or refinance their home until this is finished and they get their, their title cleaned up, cleaned up. So it's, you know, other types of identity theft, you know, if somebody steals your credit card or, or whatnot, the bank cancels your card and sends you a new one. It's no big deal. This is a huge hassle, a huge hassle in, in the life of a homeowner or a property Cause, owner. Because that's so. about the only, like you said, through a civil lawsuit, there's no, the, the police can't on their own just uh, revoke title. No. That's a that a court has to to order anything like that. So this is not one that just going to your local police department they can clean this all up for you. You're right. A lot. The in most cases you're going to have to pay to get it fixed uh, on your own, which is which is very scary that somebody could just simply file a document and that could cost you thousands of dollars to to get it unwound. Yeah. In the vast majority of cases, you're going to have to pay to do it. You're going to have to hire a lawyer. And um, the saddest cases are when people can't afford a lawyer or older people who just can't. They never quite figure out what's going on until they've actually lost their home. Um, now, criminal judges. I mean, I can't speak for every state, but I think probably uh, in most, if not all states, criminal judges can issue the order. 
But that's going to take a while because first the police have to investigate the crime, then the prosecutor has to file the charges, then they have to go through the arraignment and the preliminary hearing, and eventually you get to the point where you know a judge can make a decision on this. Um, because but meanwhile, you, you know, can't you can't get a uh, you can't refinance your house, you can't sell it exactly. Nothing. Yeah. So typically, it's faster to go through the civil process and just get it done uh, done quickly. But uh, well, anyway, there, it's a mess. When is it there anything? You know, there's this one company you mentioned that uh, pro, you know, insurance or some kind of protection, like any theft protection for this. Is there anything else that people can do to prevent this or catch it as soon as possible? It's it's very hard to prevent. It's got to be prevented at the notary level. The notaries the notaries need to be given technology uh, to ensure that the person in front of them is who they truly are. Um, and that technology exists, and, and and you know it just needs to be rolled out. As far as the, the property owners go, when you're buying a property, get title insurance. People gripe about the cost of title insurance. They haven't really thought about what it is. Imagine if it was, imagine if title insurance didn't exist and you wanted to buy a house, but before you did that, you had to go down to the county recorder's office, county clerk's office, and investigate the title history of this house. You've never done that in your life. You don't know how to search those records, right? You don't know what they mean legally. Is there, is there somebody, an, an heir out there who, who didn't, wasn't accounted for in some recent probate? You're not in the position to do that. So what we do is we outsource that job to title insurance companies. They do it. They research the title. They do this day in and day out. They know how to do it really, really well. And if they're confident that that seller has the authority to sell it to you, well, then they will issue a policy. And if they issue you a policy and it turns out they were wrong and that there is some problem with title, well, then they're, they are on the hook to pay for whatever it takes to fix that situation. So homeowners absolutely need to buy a property, property buyers of any kind. You should never, ever, ever buy any real property without getting title insurance. Even if it expen seems expensive to you, it's going to be worth it uh, for you. Now, this is how I'm going to tell you, give you, tell you something here that most people don't know. People don't even know this in um, the title insurance industry. They just don't realize this. And the only reason I know this is because I happened, just by coincidence, by the way life took me, happened to meet the lawyers who wrote this provision in a title insurance policy. There are There is a title insurance policy out there. The, there's a template issued by the American Land Title Association. They call it the homeowner's policy of title insurance. The whole thing. Not just owner's policy of title insurance, but the homeowner's policy of title insurance. And what's cool about this particular one is it actually protects you from fraud that happens after you buy it. And that's what home title theft is. Home title theft happens long after you bought the house. Somebody comes in and forges a deed and makes it look like you sold or gave away the property. So this homeowner's policy of title insurance protects you against fraud that happens afterward, even many years afterward. And I, you know, personally, I wouldn't buy a piece of property without getting that as well to protect me in the future. Because that then, then if some if this happens to you and you have to fi file a quiet title lawsuit to get your title back, the title insurance company is going to pay for it. They've got to pay for it. They're obligated to pay for it. 
it's on them to hire a lawyer and get it done. You can just let uh, let let them handle it. That's so, very interesting, with- and I'll tell you, I did not know that. I, I always been under the impression that title insurance only they're only saying when you buy this property at at this point in time, it's free and clear, and you're okay. The the people that you're buying it from uh, have proper title, and they can and they can. Uh, turn that over to you. But I thought it ended right there. The only thing that you could collect with title insurance is if they miss something and and somebody shows up and says, oh, no, this is my property. Uh, He didn't have good title to it in the first place. I I didn't know that there were any policies that covered you after the fact. So that's actually really good uh, information to know. Basically, I casually it, survey people in the title insurance industry. Anytime I meet somebody in title insurance, I ask them if they know about this, this provision. I have yet to meet somebody who does. But it's out there. And um, you can buy this policy from, you know, you can buy it from First American. You can buy it from any of the, the, the Fidelity title insurance, um, uh, any, any company under the Fidelity umbrella. It's out there. Um, And so if somebody is a victim of this crime, the first thing I would tell them to do, dig up your title insurance policy and see if it covers fraud after the policy date. That's the phrase you're looking for, after the policy date. If if you've got that policy, you're you're in great shape. Just make a claim to your your title insurance company. And so, like I said, I, I met the two, I know the two attorneys who worked for First American back in 1997, who wrote this language, which was then adopted by American Land Title Association two years later. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> uh, see, lawyers well, can do good things sometimes. They can find the right thing in the contract to help you exactly. out. Exactly. Uh, you also mentioned wire transfer. Uh, uh, this is another devastating fraud. It really is, because that money disappears so quickly. <laughs> this is this is a hard one, and there's there's often not an insurance policy to go after. Um, so how so, does it work, and and what can we do to to help? Yeah, catch it or prevent it. Number one, if you ever receive wiring instructions by email. Call up the people you're dealing with, get them on the phone, and confirm that they sent it to you. Because that's what happens. You know, these crooks will uh, hack into the system or uh, in some other way create an email address that looks like it's coming from your escrow or title company. That's in real estate. I actually had a a victim who was in the import-export business, and um, they they had wired money to China. It turned out the wiring instructions were totally fraudulent. So it can be um, in, in pretty much any business where wire money is wired regularly. And you just need, need to confirm that the intended recipient is the one who actually sent you those instructions. Confirm the, the bank account verbally with them. Because, you know, in the real estate, real estate industry, once this happens... The bank typically isn't going to be on the hook. You know, you wired money out of your bank account. You did it. You told your bank where to wire that money. Your bank typically isn't going to be on the hook for that. 
typically only, the only time they're going to be on the hook is if something, if their employees did something wrong in the transaction. So once that money is wired over, you know, to whomever, they're going to transfer it and launder it through multiple accounts as quickly as possible. It's probably going to be gone. And you're probably not going to have a good, any good recourse to recover that money. Uh, and, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars here, typically in, the, in, these, in these transactions. Hundreds of thousands of dollars can be, can be taken this way. Uh, so it's a lot of money, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's very painful for the victims. Well, and you're, you're absolutely right. If, if you tell the bank to send money to these people, this account, that's their that's their only responsibility is to send it where you told them to send it. If that turns out that person's uh, fake or false or it's not their responsibility and that it, it works for wire transfers or $100,000 but it works the same way with $200 transfer on Zelle. Right. It, it, so that's something for everybody to keep in mind. Don't those fraud that was fraud protections don't work with direct transfers from your bank account. It's if if they if you told them to send it to these people and that's and they send it there, that's all they're they're off the hook for that. So yeah. it's uh, it's definitely verify the identities of everybody that you can and make sure that you've got the right account. You're dealing with the the right people uh, because once it's gone you're right it's uh, very rare to be able to try and get that back like i said at the beginning in these in fraud cases you're often left to find an unwitting enabler of the crime who has an insurance policy and that's that's the only way you're going to recover some money for the victim. Well, David, this has been really interesting. I, I've certainly learned a lot and got some great uh, tips on this. And so I appreciate your time today. Any parting thoughts, anything you want to, to kind of leave us with? I'll just say that I'm, I'm always available. Uh, if anybody has any questions about some kind of fraud situation, they want to want to want to run a fact pattern by me. They can shoot me an email. We can jump on the phone. I'm happy to talk anytime. David at davidfleck.com. Okay. Easy enough. Yep. <laughs> all right, David. I appreciate it very much. And uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. And again, this is uh, John Gill for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again on another edition of Fraud Talk. Thank you. <laughs>